you have your Bibles, if you would open them to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2. Mark, chapter 2. We continue in our study in the Gospel of Mark. And what we've seen thus far, which is from the first verse, chapter 1, verse 1, up to chapter 2, verse 17, can actually be summarized into two words. The first is obedience, beginning with the call of the first four disciples, Simon, Andrew, James, and John. Jesus tells them, follow me, and they obey. And then there is the first miracle that Mark records in the synagogue. There's a man who is demon-possessed, who has an evil spirit. And Jesus says to this demon, be quiet, come out of him. And the demon obeys. This is followed by the healing of the leper. When Jesus tells him, see that you, tell, you don't tell anyone about this, but go show yourself to the priests and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded. In this case, he did not obey. He disobeyed. Then there's the healing of the paralytic. His friends go up on the roof because they can't get into the house and they lower him through a, a hole in the roof that they made. Jesus says to him, I tell you, take up, get up, take your bed and go home. And the man obeyed. He got up immediately, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. And finally, there's the calling of Levi, who we know as Matthew in the Gospel of Matthew. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. The responses we've seen thus far, with one exception, is that Jesus speaks and people obey. Just a side note about the one who did not obey. Um, We read in verse number 45 of chapter 1, Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. Some might say that the leper's disobedience ruined Jesus' ministry plan, that he had a plan and this man disobeyed him and it sort of ruined everything, that he could no longer go into the towns but had to stay out uh, in lonely places in the wilderness. Um, Simply put, we may think that our disobedience can thwart or seemingly thwart God's plans, which is not the case, though it may seem to be the case. If, in fact, human disobedience can thwart God's plans, then nothing would have happened in the Old Testament because we have disobedience after disobedience, and yet God's plan still pulls through, and we have the coming of the Messiah in the New Testament. The second word, the first is obedience, the second is doctor. In verses 16 and 17, when the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, They asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The Pharisees thought that Jesus should hang out with them, that they were the theologically correct, they were the cool guys, and why is Jesus hanging out with these losers, these sinners, and tax collectors? The reason that they thought this is they thought that they themselves were righteous. Or in the words of the analogy Jesus used, they were healthy, that they didn't need a doctor. But the reality is they, in fact, did need a doctor. They just couldn't see it. Jesus came to minister to those who were sick, to sinners, to change their thinking, to change their actions. Um, 
the Pharisees needed to change their thinking and their actions just as much as the sinners and tax collectors. They just couldn't see it. They just couldn't see it. And that's why they opposed Jesus. And we will see in our passage today opposition that began when he healed the paralytic, when he said, your sins are forgiven. They're like, okay, this guy's blaspheming. When we get to the end of our passage today in chapter 3, they are planning to destroy him. There are three issues that come up today. Actually, two, and one is repeated. The first issue is that of fasting, and then the second and the third both deal with the Sabbath. Look, if you would, in chapter 2, verse number 18. Now, John's disciples, that's John the Baptist's disciples, and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Now, there are different ways to look at fasting. What we find in the Old Testament, particularly in the prophets, is that it is associated with mourning, with sorrow. In Zechariah 7, we read, Then the word of the Lord Almighty came to me, Ask all the people of the land and the priest, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month for the past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? And then in chapter 8, he mentions four specific fast. In the fourth month, the fifth month, the seventh month, and the tenth month. And what are these fasts for? In the fourth month, it is when Moses broke the tablets when he came down from Sinai. They're like, this is a time for fasting, for mourning. In the fifth month, it is to remember that the temple has been destroyed by the Babylonians. In the seventh month, it was the murder of the leader, Gedaliah, that the Babylonians had put in charge. And in the tenth month, it was, in fact, the siege and the taking of Jerusalem. So these fasts reminded the Jews of past tragedies, of things that had happened in the past, great disasters. These were practiced all the way up into the time of Jesus. And the Pharisees, for good measure, had added a couple more. That is, every Monday and every Thursday, they fasted. You may remember the story of the two men who went up to the temple to pray. This is recorded in Luke. And... The Pharisee was praying and he said, I thank you that I'm not like this loser over here, this tax collector. I fast twice a week. Okay. In reality, if you read the Old Testament, God only told his people to fast one day a year. One day a year. So the fourth month, fifth month, seventh month, tenth month, the Jews made that up. Okay, They created it as a way to express their sorrow, their grief over what had happened. But God never said, I need you guys to fast to remember these events. It's something they made up themselves. Um, there's only one time that they're supposed to fast. And if you read this, and I've looked at various translations, uh, the, the ESV, the NIV, uh, King James Version, none of them use the word fast. In Leviticus chapter 16, and then in chapter 23, on the Day of Atonement, they were to afflict themselves or deny themselves. It doesn't say fast, but we take it to mean fasting, that they were, in fact, to remember their sins on the Day of Atonement, that God would, through the high priest, forgive their sins. But the Jews somehow had taken this one day a year practice and made it something else. 
They made it as an expression of sorrow, but by the time we get to the Pharisees, it's almost an expression of righteousness. Look at me. I fast twice a week. And they, in fact, were missing the point. This is from Isaiah 58. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? They're speaking to God. The Jews are like, we're fasting. Why don't you see it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yeah, on the day of your fasting, you do as you please. This is God speaking and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for a man to humble himself? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed or for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? In other words, God says, listen, you don't want to eat. You want to fast? Fine. The food you were going to eat, you should give to someone who's hungry. You should give it to someone who is in need. But in fact, it became sort of a, look at me, I'm fasting. In the New Testament, we find fasting used in a different way. We find this in the book of Acts in the early church and then in uh, 1 Corinthians. But even before then, in, in Luke chapter 2, when Jesus is taken to the temple and Simeon sees him there, there's also a woman named Anna, a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And then in the early church in Acts 13, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Now, again, if we're not careful, we'll miss what's going on here. We think, oh, fasting, that means I don't eat. Or in some cases, don't eat or drink anything for 24 hours. But I think Paul gives us an insight in 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7, by the way, has nothing to do with food. It's about marriage, about sexuality. Okay? And this is what he says. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. In other words, it's a sexual fasting, if you wish, an abstinence. And what is the purpose of that? To say, oh, look at us, we're good people, we're abstaining. No. The time that you would have spent doing that, you spend it in prayer. In the same way with fasting for food, you don't like, well, I'm going to deprive myself of food. No. The time you would have been eating breakfast or lunch or dinner or all three, you spend that time in prayer. So fasting is a replacement for other activity. 
So in the early church, when they fast and pray, they're actually sort of repeating itself. They are praying instead of eating. Okay? They are fasting and they are praying. Okay? But for the Jews of Jesus' time, it was a significant marker. This is who we are as God's people. In our passage, the people wanted to know from Jesus. Listen, John was here. He's in prison at this point, And his disciples fast. The Pharisees and their disciples fast. Your disciples don't fast. What's up with that? Why, why don't they? Jesus responds to their question by asking a question, something he often did. Look, if you would, at verses 19 and 20. Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. What is Jesus saying? It's inappropriate to fast at a wedding. Okay? A wedding is a time of joy and of celebration, and traditionally a time of eating. Uh, in the Jewish custom, as far as we can tell, there was no religious ceremony as such, no exchange of vows as, as we do, as Jason and Gwen did. I did their ceremony 12 years ago. The Jews didn't do that. You know what they did? They ate. They called all their friends together, and the man and the woman said, listen, we want to announce publicly, we are now going to live together as husband and wife. Let's eat. And that's what they would do. And Jesus says, listen, you go to a wedding and you're going to fast? That's inappropriate. That is not correct behavior. Well, Jesus, the Messiah, has come to the earth to fast, to somehow mourn or be sorrowful. That's inappropriate. God has sent his only son. This is not the time to fast. Okay? On such a day, and actually, from what we can tell, actually Jewish weddings would go for several days, not just one big meal. They would just go on and on and on. Um, that's, not, that's not the time to fast. It's like, oh, let's fast and be sad and sorrowful. Are you kidding? Someone got married. We should eat and enjoy. I remember reading a book. This is fairly recently, I think in the last couple of years, about military nurses in the Philippines during World War II. They were in Bataan because that's where all the soldiers had retreated to. This is January through April of 1942. And you put men and women together and people fall in love and there was a nurse who wanted to marry a soldier. Seems like a strange time to marry in the midst of war, but they wanted to get married. But they had to get permission from the priest because it was Lent. I'd never heard that before. I'd never heard you couldn't get married during Lent. So I looked it up, I Googled it, and what I read is that, in fact, in the Catholic Church, you can get married during Lent, but it's got to be a very low-key affair. You can't have a big wedding. It's, it's got to be very low-key. And you cannot get married on Good Friday or Holy Saturday. That you absolutely cannot do. In the Greek Orthodox tradition, getting married during Lent is out of the question. You cannot get married during Lent because Lent is seen as a time of solemn observance. I don't think it's necessarily a time of sorrow, 
but it's a time of solemnity. And so to get married during this time is inappropriate. But Jesus said, listen, you're going to fast. I'm here. That's inappropriate. The Messiah has come. It's a time for rejoicing. There is a time when the Messiah will be taken from you, and then you could fast. And I would say that the time for fasting at the death of the Messiah were the three days he was in the tomb, in the ground. Because at the resurrection, there's to be a time of rejoicing. Um, one of my favorite passages in Luke is in Luke 24, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, a husband and wife, Cleopas and his wife Mary. They're walking along, and this third person joins them. They don't realize it's Jesus because they were kept from seeing who it was. Um, and so we asked them, what are you guys talking about as you're going along the way? Um, and it says, this is Luke 24, 17, they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you only a visitor in Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, Jesus asked them. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He, that is Jesus, said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all the prophets had spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. That's the first part of chapter 24. The last verses of Luke, it's also in 24. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Not with fasting, not with sorrow, but with great joy. And they stayed there continually praising God. I would argue that sorrow is not appropriate after the resurrection. It is a time of great joy. But Jesus continues about what is inappropriate. He uses the wedding uh, metaphor, but he continues. Look at verse, verses 21 and 22. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. Again, Jesus is speaking of what is not appropriate. When you patch a piece of clothing that you've been using for a while, it's been washed, it's shrunk, all that it's going to shrink, okay? and you want to patch the hole, you don't get a piece of new cloth that has not been shrunk because next time you wash it, it will shrink, it will pull away from the old cloth. And so the tear, I guess which was bad enough that you wanted to make a repair, will be even worse. And then he talks about making wine, which in those days they would put 
wine at the beginning of the process into new wine skin that still had a certain amount of flexibility in it. As the gases build up, as it ferments, the wine skins begin to expand. An old wine skin has expanded as far as it's going to go. Okay? And if you put new wine into that, when the fermentation process happens, the wine skin, in fact, will burst. It's inappropriate to use new cloth on an old piece of clothing, and it is inappropriate to take new wine and put it in old wineskins. Well, what does this mean? Well, Jesus is speaking of the kingdom of heaven. The Messiah has come. It is the new way. It will not fit into the confines of the old. Fasting had been a way in the past of expressing sorrow. It was a man-made tradition, but it was a way of expressing sorrow. They took it from the Day of Atonement when you say you're sorry for your sins. Well, John has come along and Jesus has come along. And the way to express sorrow is to repent, is to turn from your sins and turn to God. People need to turn from the old way. They need to turn to the new way. And that is found in Jesus, the Messiah. That's the first issue, fasting. The second two have to do with the Sabbath. Look, if you would, at verses 23 and 24. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as his disciples walked along, they began to pluck some heads of grain. The Pharisee said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? We come to another controversy, which is, shouldn't be a controversy at all. Uh, it's a man-made controversy. The Pharisees think that what the disciples are doing breaks the law, breaks what Moses said. But this is what Moses said. If you enter your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat all the grapes you want, but do not put any in your basket. If you enter your neighbor's grain field, you may pick kernels with your hands, but you may not put a sickle to his standing grain. So in other words, if you're going through your neighbor's vineyard or through the grain fields, you can in fact pluck some, you know, and sort of rub them, get the husk off and then pop them in your mouth. You can do that. Grapes, you can eat all you want, but don't take a basket with you. You cannot reap. You can't harvest. Read the passage. The disciples weren't harvesting. Okay, they weren't reaping. They were simply grabbing some as they went along. So they weren't violating the actions. The issue, I think, ultimately came down to they were doing this on the Sabbath. Because what they saw the disciples doing was reaping, which it was not. Okay? In the Mishnah, which is a collection of Jewish traditions, it was written down, um, there are 39 categories of work that you cannot do on the Sabbath. One of them was reaping, but the disciples weren't doing that. As the fact, as the fact that these men were disciples and they were disciples of Jesus, it falls on him. He's their boss. He's their teacher. He must not have taught them well because they apparently are violating Jewish traditions. And as he did before, Jesus answers their question with a question. Verse 25 and 26. He answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. 
Jesus is recalling an incident recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 21. David was on the run because Saul wanted to kill him and he needed food. He was hungry, he had men he was going to meet and he needed to give them bread. So he goes to the high priest and they're like, we don't have ordinary bread, okay? We have consecrated bread. We have bread that is only for the high priest and his sons to eat. That's all we have. And you're not a high priest, not son of a priest. So you know, this, is, this is consecrated bread, okay? And what happens? They give him the bread. There were 12 loaves that were to be put on the table inside the tabernacle. Six on this side, six on that side for the 12 tribes of Israel. This is consecrated bread, the bread of the presence. And yet they gave it to David, which I mean, really seems like a violation of what was happening. You, know, you, you shouldn't give what belongs to the priest to somebody else. But David was hungry, as were his men. And so they gave it to him. Verses 27 and 28. These are just very powerful verses. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. I don't know if this has never occurred to me before. I haven't thought in this way. But if you look at Genesis chapter 1, you will find that Adam was created on the sixth day of creation and the Sabbath was created on the seventh day, the day of rest. So man wasn't created for Sabbath. Sabbath was created for man. Okay. When the Pharisees and the people before them had come up with 39 categories of things you could not do on the Sabbath, they'd gone way beyond God's law way beyond. And for them, the Sabbath became master over the Jewish people rather than it, you know, it was, they were made for the Sabbath rather than the Sabbath being made for them. Jesus says, listen, this, you guys have got it all wrong. And then, in case they weren't upset enough at this point, he says, okay, that the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. In the same way that he said to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. I mean, he could have just said, get up and walk and you would have been healed. But Jesus wants to make a point. So he does here as well, that the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Son of Man, you may remember when we went through Ezekiel, that this was a title that we found, um, I think more than 90 times, like half of the times we find it in the Bible, it's referring to Ezekiel. But there it refers to Ezekiel as the son of Adam, son of man. He is a human being. The passage that I think informs what Jesus is saying is found in Daniel chapter 7. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming on the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. What did Jesus say at the beginning? What was his message? Go back early on in Mark chapter 1. 
Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God is here. And Jesus is the Son of Man. He is the one who has all authority and glory and sovereign power. Which means he understood what the Sabbath was for and the Pharisees did not. So that's like strike number two as far as the Pharisees are concerned. Now we come to chapter three and the first six verses here. Let's read them. It has to do with the Sabbath again. Another time he went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. And then it's it's not in the NIV, but the, the word is there. Immediately, the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Things to consider about this story. First of all, we're not told where it took place, but it appears that Jesus is still in Capernaum because after this event, he is going to leave town because of uh, the opposition. He's still in Capernaum. I think it's still the same synagogue where he did his first miracle where he cast out the demon. And then he healed Simon's mother-in-law that same Sabbath. Um, And then he was questioned about his disciples, their actions on the Sabbath. One gets a sense of a recurring theme here in Capernaum. Jesus is again in a synagogue. It is a Sabbath. There's a man with a shriveled hand. Based on his previous activities, there are people there wanting to accuse him. They're looking for a reason to accuse him. Of what? What do they think he's going to do? Is he going to heal on the Sabbath? He'd done it before. He claimed to be Lord of the Sabbath. Would he heal this man on the Sabbath? The question I have is, why is this guy with the shriveled hand only showing up now? Wasn't he in the synagogue on previous Sabbaths? Why is he only showing up now? Which for me suggests, and I would suggest to you, this is a setup. This is a setup. Do you remember the story of the woman caught in adultery? That was a setup. They caught her in the act of adultery. How do you do that unless you've set it up? They found someone who needs to be healed and they brought him in. Let's see. Let's see if this guy will in fact heal on the Sabbath. Jesus is game. He says to the man, stand up in front of everyone. This is not going to be some secret healing. Okay, This is going to be done, be, be done very publicly. And so he asked those who want to accuse him with a question, which is lawful to do on the Sabbath? to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? It's an interesting question because I think the Pharisees would agree if someone is in serious trouble, if they're about to die and you can save their life, even though it's the Sabbath, you should do it. 
I'm always reminded, I don't know if you get this when you call your doctor and they have that pre-recorded message. If this is a true emergency, hang up and dial 911. Um, well, the Pharisees would say, if this is a true emergency, absolutely, Jesus, heal this guy. But shriveled hand, yeah, that, that can wait. We can wait a couple days on that. But Jesus says, listen, is it okay to, to do good on the Sabbath? Obviously, to heal or to save, to save life, yes, you can do that on the Sabbath. But how about just doing good instead of doing evil? This man didn't have a life-threatening illness, okay? But he did need to be healed. And Jesus healed the man. He healed him. The man stretched out his hand, and it was restored. And the response, immediately, the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. In the ESV, and the King James Version, it says how they might destroy him. So, I mean, they're not just... Yeah, let's just let him die. They want to destroy this man. Immediately, the key word in Mark, they went out and began to plot. And it's really interesting because if you'd been alive during Jesus' time, these guys are enemies. The Herodians and the Pharisees, they want nothing to do with each other. The Herodians were sort of a political party. They supported Herod Antipas, who was the ruler in Galilee under the Romans. So they're like tax collectors. They're traitors. They're hanging out with the bad guys. They picked the wrong side. The Pharisees, on the other hand, are a very religious party, and they believe that they are the holy ones of Israel. So you've got these political traitors, and you've got these religious zealots. They shouldn't even be speaking to each other. But now they get together and they plot how they might destroy this man. We shouldn't be surprised that enemies will come together to try to destroy Jesus. The Sanhedrin, the high priest, with Pilate, they put Jesus to death, as I read to you from Luke 24. And in fact, we find, in fact, in human history, that there are those who will ally themselves together who normally would not in order to oppose God's people, to oppose his church, to oppose the truth. Why did the Pharisees ally themselves with the Herodians? Because the Pharisees did not have the legal right to kill anybody. That was a political matter. In the same way, the high priest sends Jesus to Pilate for Pilate to kill him because the Sanhedrin, they're the Supreme Court, but they can't put anyone to death. So, in normal circumstances, I can't stand the sight of you. But you know what? We need to be buds. We need to work together on this because we've got to get rid of this guy. We have to get rid of Jesus. And so what we find at this point in our study of Mark, we're only in chapter, the beginning of chapter 3 of 16 chapters, is there are people who want to destroy him. Why the conflict? Why does it seem that Jesus goes out of his way to sort of stir the pot. Um, Fasting, the Sabbath, talking about forgiving sins. Why does he do this? The Pharisees and many other Jews had turned the law into a weapon. 
they had weaponized the law. They had weaponized the Sabbath. They used it as a sign of exclusivity. I'm a Jew. I don't work on the Sabbath. They use it to keep people in line. Hey, don't any of you guys do something on the Sabbath? Okay, we have 39 things here you cannot do. 39 categories of work. You better not. You better not break this. And so it became a cudgel. It became something to beat someone over the head with instead of saying, this is a day of rest. This is a gift from God. That's what God intended. When God first gave the Ten Commandments, it was given to a people who had been enslaved for centuries. They didn't have any days off. And now they have the Sabbath. It's a gift from God. But that which was a gift had been turned into a weapon. And Jesus will have none of it. They have weaponized something that was intended to be a sign of grace. The Pharisees and others had gone beyond what God had said. And whenever you go beyond what God has said, you're on shaky ground. And that which was intended to be a sign of gift and of grace now becomes a weapon of death. They weaponized the gift of God. I want to be careful how I say this. I want you to be careful how you hear it. I would suggest to you that the church has done the same thing with the message of the gospel. I find it fascinating that Jesus doesn't tell the tax collectors and the sinners, you guys, you know, you're really, you're really bad people. You... Um, yeah, you've broken the law. You've broken a lot of the laws. You're in serious trouble. Jesus says, listen, good news. The kingdom is here. And people who knew that they were sinners, they don't need to be told. How do we share the gospel? How do we share the grace of God with others? Do we have to convince them that they are Losers, that they are sinners, that they're terrible people. There is a place for speaking of sin. I'm not denying that. But have we turned the grace of God into a weapon? And rather than showing the love of Christ and the grace of God, His amazing grace, now it's like, boy, you don't repent, you're in serious trouble. Again, I want to be careful here. If someone does not repent, there are severe consequences. But how do we share the gospel? How do we share the good news? How do we share the love of Christ? How do we share his grace? Years ago, one Sunday after service, went out to eat with the family, and during the meal, uh, the wife asked, Damon, um, if we were alive during the time of Jesus, who would we be? And I thought for a moment, and I said, the Pharisees. 
the Pharisees, because we think we know so much. We've got good doctrine. And if we're not careful, we have weaponized the gospel. And how terrible that is. God forgive us. Let's pray together. Our Father, how gracious you are. How loving. You proved it by sending your Son, the Lord Jesus. And when he came into the world, he preached the good news. And those who saw their need came to him, the tax collectors, the sinners. But those who could not see their need opposed him and wanted to destroy him. There are many of our brothers and sisters right now around the world who suffered that, that people want to destroy them for being your children. We don't really face that problem. We face the problem of having turned your message of grace into a weapon. We thank you for your grace that saved a wretch like me, as we say. We do recognize that we are broken and we are sinners, that all humanity is broken. Our job is not to beat people over the head with that, but to show them the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Forgive us that in doing what we thought was right, we may have done terrible wrong. Give us wisdom as we speak to those we live with, those we work with, those we come in contact with, as we speak the truth of your grace and your love how you sent your only begotten Son. We thank you for your word, for these three incidents that we read about today. May we take this truth home with us, think on it, meditate on it, and may we not be hearers of the word only, but doers as well. May we be gracious to those around us, May we forgive as we have been forgiven. And may we love as we have been loved. Thank you for bringing us together today, beginning of a new week, to worship you. We thank you for being reminded that on this day 12 years ago, Jason and Gwen got married. We're grateful for your grace in their lives. We ask now that as we leave this place, your spirit and your grace would go with us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.